HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Hearst Ranch, the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. For more information, visit HearstRanch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. I know, always the slow jams when you're tuning into the Heritage Radio Network. You're listening to the Farm Report. I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks, and today we are lucky enough to be joined in studio by the founders of Runa, Tyler Cage and Dan McCombie. Welcome to the studio, guys. Thanks, Erin. Thanks. How's it going? A little, little, little uh, soggy, sweaty out there. I'm glad you made it, and I'm really excited that you brought some icy cold tea for me to try. Of course, that's, uh, that's our deal. Well... So I suppose we should start at the beginning and give folks um, just a little bit of a rundown of what exactly uh, Runa is, what we're going to be chatting about today. Absolutely. Um, so Runa is a beverage made with an Amazonian superleaf. It's a superleaf that's called Guayusa. It's a leaf that grows in the Amazonian regions of Ecuador. The hunters there brew it and drink it before going hunting at night because they say it makes them very focused and alert. When it's brewed, it has as much caffeine as coffee and double the antioxidants of a green tea. So combinations good for what we call clean energy. And um, one of the things I realized as I like prepping for the interview is, you know, you're seeing a ton of products billing themselves as, you know, coming out of the Amazon. And I, I had this moment where I'm like, I don't actually know what is included or not included when we talk about that. So can you talk a little bit about the, the specific region that you're working in? And um, is that the only place that one can find the, the tea leaves? So we work specifically in the Amazonian region of Ecuador. And actually a really particularly special region of the country because it's right where the Amazon reaches the Andes Mountains. The Amazon region itself is obviously vast. When people talk about products coming from there, it could be Brazil, Peru, Colombia, Bolivia even. But we're currently working just in Ecuador. We moved down there and we partnered with the farmers who've been growing it and drinking it right in the rainforest itself for centuries. And we work with about 2,000 farmers over, uh, right now, just one province in Ecuador. But we're looking for other areas we're going to start working too. Nice. Well, uh, I want to back up a little bit. How did you guys get down to Ecuador? Where did that journey start? So in, uh, in college, I studied indigenous languages. So I found a 
kind of quirky way to get myself down in the jungle. So I spent a couple years working with different tribes, learning about um, mostly how their environmental philosophies are baked into the structures of their language. It's kind of the academic area that fascinated me. But as I spent time there, I'd spend all night in these ceremonies with healers and feathers and smoke and these really rich expressions of native culture. But as soon as the sun would rise, you'd hear chainsaws. And I'd go talk to the farmers and say, hey, you guys talk this pretty big game about, you know, the trees being part of your community and all this other stuff, but you're ripping down trees with chainsaws. How can you possibly explain that? And they'd say, well, if I have to choose between feeding my child, you make money to get food for them, or cutting down a tree, it's a pretty easy decision. So that really shifted my thinking and realized that if we couldn't find markets and real economic opportunities, there's really no future for the integrity of the Amazon rainforest or the future of these traditions. Um, so Dan had traveled in Ecuador as well. Uh, we came back to school our last semester, teamed up in a business plan class, uh, threw around a bunch of pretty horrible ideas for undergraduate business plans, and uh, I threw out this idea of Guayusa, which I drank down there and fell in love with, and we realized no one had ever commercially produced before. So we said, hey, you know, energy drinks are the fastest growing segment of the beverage industry. It's this really simple, natural, healthy leaf, and we could use this business as a way to create lots of new sustainable income for the farmers. So I, I have like... The, for me, I always when there's kind of an outsider looking to become an insider and take some you know type of product from a community and export it to another community, shoots off a lot of alarm bells in my head. And when you're here in the states and you're looking at developing a business plan, and you're like you know energy drinks fastest growing segment. That's awesome. Let's get into that. And then you have kind of this uh, other opportunity where you're down there, you're studying the language, you're very immersed in the community. Um, you're really kind of traveling between these two vastly different worlds. And so I'm curious, as part of that initial business plan, how did you engage with the local communities? I mean, how did you make sure that you weren't being kind of a bunch of white assholes who came down to Ecuador and were like, you know, going to save you guys? Yeah, very, very good question. Um, it's actually was the spark of how we got thinking about this is we started talking to communities and they were very clear like we don't want charity we don't want workshops we don't want handouts we don't want people coming and you know training us in ways that are kind of paternalistic and kind of downgrading we want partners to do business with we want to produce our goods that are important in our communities we want to sell them at fair prices and share that as a really physical way with the rest of the world like that's what we want so if you know you people want to pay us fair prices and do business with us and partner and share these goods great let's do business um, so we really approached it um, from that from that perspective. And in many ways, it's actually rooted in the Amazonian cultural heritage. I mean, these tribes, they're traders. So I mean, every different tribe is known for their different plants, their different resources, their birds, you know, everything there, their medicine. It's all trading networks. So for them, this concept of trade, of sharing part of their culture through the plants is actually very familiar in a way that um, up here, it's not just some you know environmental philosophy or something we're preaching about. Oh, these trees way down somewhere else where people have never been. It's like, hey, drink this. Tastes really good. Comes from these people. You know, sustainably produced. And that um, that real component that really you know you can touch it means a lot to us. And strategically, when we started working, we took a liberal arts approach. In short, so I studied creative writing. Dan studied marine bio. Pretty abysmal background for building a beverage company or an Amazonian supply chain. So the perspective we took was, um, basically, we, we looked at the tradition of drinking guayusa. So the way the communities drink it, they get up at about 3 in the morning. Um, the whole community sits around the fire, and they boil these huge clay pots full of guayusa. Um, and it's really simple. They sit around the fire, they talk, they tell stories, they drink tea, and that's really the foundation of their culture and their community livelihood. So we said, hey, as a business, what if we can get lots of different people around the fire, 
we can talk, we can trade ideas, we can collaborate. And that very simple act could be the foundation for building a successful organization. So that's a lot of what we did. We talked to as many people as possible um, and really brought a diverse group of people around us to make it work. And how in the in the community, the Guayusa, is that something that people purchase or do people kind of grow their own or is it a community resource that everyone has entree to? I mean, how are they ingesting or trading it or sharing it locally? So actually, the really interesting thing is that Guayusa was used only by the families who'd grown it for personal consumption for you know centuries, millennia. We're not even sure. And it was really funny because they do have other products they sell to the market, cacao, coffee. Those are really tough to work with because of the really variability in price and some of the issues of growing it and the blights and so forth. But we came down there and kind of going back to your original question, one of our really clear intentions was to sit down and not just be those white guys who come from a liberal arts Ivy League school and tell people what to do, but listen and hear what people want and throw out ideas and really have the interchange. But you know, we would go to communities, we'd sit with them, and we'd always kind of be talking about Guayusa. And they'd sit with us and they'd be like, okay, this is great, you know, this Guayusa plant, that's fine, but do you want to buy our cacao now? Um, so we worked from the ground up in partnership with them to build this so that there actually was a market. So we've both been working on the one in Ecuador as well as internationally. So some of the Guayusa trees were already there and had been the trees the farmers had been growing and drinking from every day for as long as they could remember. But we've also been really diligently working with them on a large-scale reforestation project, actually planting Guayusa trees, A, to make sure that we can support the growth and vibrancy of the Amazonian ecosystems, but B, to make sure that we really think further ahead about the sort of long-term implications of the supply chain we've built. So that essentially you're not going to be leaving the region stripped of the product that you're selling. Exactly. And we, we go out of our way to work in a system that the farmers actually call the chakra, uh, spelled with a C, not a K, different okay. word. And that system's amazing. They will actually build what's basically a forest garden. They'll plant guayusa, they'll plant fruit-bearing trees, potentially wood trees, all kinds of crops like ginger and beans and cacao and vanilla. And it'll be a productive garden for them that's in the center of the forest. So we've been working with them to build more of those systems so they don't become dependent on guayusa like they may have on other crops in the past. And today we've planted about a quarter million trees, which are the largest nurseries in the entire Ecuadorian Amazon doing reforestation. Um, and kind of per Dan's point, the, one of the main things that interested us in this work was the innovation component. So in the fact that no one had ever commercially produced this agriculturally and there was no market structure, it's kind of was one of my challenges with fair trade in general, with fair trade chocolate and coffee, is that these are hugely entrenched, very unjust supply chains. I mean, cacao trade was pretty much rooted in the slave trade. So when you're trying to make them more fair, you're fighting against these humongous, you know, entrenched international forces that you can try and make more fair, but it's really tough. Whereas with Guayusa, there was no market. So we could really design it from the inside out with the ideal standards of high prices, farmer cooperation, um, all these uh, reforestation programs Dan talked about. So it was a very unique opportunity in that way to not be working against established market forces. Well, I want to talk into, you know, this is the farm report, uh, a little bit of the kind of uh, life cycle of the plant, the growing, the harvesting, the processing. I, so can you kind of take us through, does it start with a seed? I mean, at the very beginning, you know, uh, how do you get the plant going? What kind of uh, area does it like? What are the things that kind of necessary for the initial uh, production? I guess there's maybe two or three really unique features of Guayusa. Um, the first is that it's sterile. So the only way to propagate it is through cuttings, um, which basically... What it means is that humans have transplanted it via cuttings for so many generations that it's almost forgotten how to propagate sexually. 
So um, what we do is bummer, we, <clears throat> bummer, I know, bummer, why you said bummer. Um, <laughs> I know. Thankfully, it has us humans to uh, cooperate with. Um, so what we do is we take cuttings from uh, trees. We've kind of done a lot of research to figure out the ideal cuttings. Uh, plant those in nurseries for about six months. Once they're about you know two feet tall, um, we donate the trees to the farmers, who then transplant them in these you know agroforestry systems with all the medicinal plants, the hardwood trees, the fruit trees. Um, a really cool feature is it takes about a year and a half to get the first harvest. So um, it basically solves a really critical issue with reforestation programs in the Amazon. Because if you're a farmer, you need to make money. So the easiest way to do that is you plant corn, you plant bananas, you plant yucca, which are you have to burn the rainforest down. But you get harvest in three, six, nine months. And then if a big NGO comes along and says, oh, that's really not sustainable, you should plant trees. And in 20 years, you'll get a harvest from the trees. They're like, yeah, that's really nice, but um, I can't really do that. Yeah, hungry now. So what's great is they can plant all their short-term crops, get the food crops, sustain their family. And then as soon as the bananas kind of finish their last cycle, about a year and a half, the guayusa becomes productive. So it fills that gap perfectly. It's perennial. You can harvest it four times a year, um, which is also a benefit compared to, say, coffee, where coffee farmers get one to two harvests a year. This is much more sustained income throughout the year so i'm you know five eight and i'm standing next to a guayusa tree how do i compare i mean what's it look like so it depends a lot on if it's taken care of well or not i mean we've seen trees out there that you know some grandfather planted decades ago and they can grow you know as wide as a human and 60 feet tall but we've really worked with the farmers to look at how they had pruned and maintained the plants before and in short they use a structure where they're basically um coppicing it and kind of growing out more of the lower level shoots to make it more bush-like. So, you know, one of the average trees that's established that farmers are harvesting from, it can be five to eight feet tall and really seem kind of like an apple tree almost in terms of the way it looks, in terms of the size. Um, the newer ones we planted because you can start harvesting them at two or three years and they'll keep growing. Right now, a lot of them often look like saplings. They'll continue to grow and blossom. And we're actually, and we can talk about this more, we're doing a ton of agricultural research into the best ways for harvesting it, the best ways to maintain it, how the farmers can best use their time and plant their systems to really make sure that this looks like a long-term vibrant economy for them in the Amazon. So I want to tuck into the harvesting in just a moment after the break. But before we get there, with regards to the, the research you're doing, I mean, I think that one of the additional benefits is you're essentially documenting in some ways the agricultural skill set of a community. I mean, prior to that, is it, uh, how has that been passed down from like generation to generation? Are there like books used in the region or is it basically an oral tradition? I mean, you, are you guys are like really uncharted ground with your like, we're writing the first paragraph about right. it. and like <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely an oral tradition. So it's passed down from the grandparents to the parents to the kids. Uh, I mean, you go out and with these, you know, farmers and spend time in these forest gardens and the, you know, dad will be like, oh, I'm going hunting. I'll be back in a few hours. And there's like a three-year-old, a five-year-old and a seven-year-old just hanging out in the jungle by themselves. So it's a lot of, uh, I guess, learned by experience down there. Um, a cool thing about our research too, is we publish every single uh, finding that we have. So we have agreements with the indigenous federations, the governments that 100% of the research we generate, whether it's processing, whether it's market knowledge, whether it's um, agricultural practices, we publish that and share that across our network. Um, so that definitely speaks to, you know, not trying to make things proprietary, but making a much more robust value chain as opposed to just a uh, supply chain. Is, do you guys have any competition in this area? Is there anyone else purchasing Runa? We're I'm the, sorry, purchasing the, the Guayusa? We're the only ones down there producing it right now. Um, a cool thing we do too is we wholesale it to other tea companies. So companies like Stash and Harney and Sons and Oregon Chai use it as an ingredient in their blends. 
but in terms of actually producing it on the ground, we're the only ones for now. Awesome. So we are going to move to just a short break. We are in the studio with Tyler and Dan of Aruna. Stay tuned. When we get back, we'll tuck into the harvesting process and have more tea talk. You're listening to Texas Stampede Vaiula on the Heritage Radio Network.org. Stay tuned for more from the Farm Report. Ranch grass fed beef, pasture raised on 150,000 acres in Central California. Hearst Ranch grass fed beef, free range, sustainably produced, humane. Hearst Ranch grass fed beef, the authentic flavor of the American West. Man, the the break snuck up on us here. So much tea talk in the interim. For those of you who are just tuning in, we are in the studio talking uh, with the great folks from Runa, and we're going to tuck into the harvesting process now. So, um, why don't you guys take it through it? Take take us through it. You said it takes about a year and a half for the first harvest, and then you can harvest multiple times a year. Is that right? That's right. Um, so the farmers they harvest on average right now. Every family has like five or ten trees. So these were trees that their grandparents planted <clears throat> that they had for a long time before we got there. And then on average, every family's planted about 150 to 200 trees. So when they go to harvest, the whole family goes out, parents, kids, uh, they bring these big baskets. Um, they harvest mature leaves, not the young leaves. So it's actually different from how green tea harvesting takes place. These big, thick, thick leaves. Um, fill them up in baskets, usually harvest about 100 pounds per harvest. Um, our trucks arrive directly to the farms and we pay cash on the spot. So it's actually a cool setup compared to even lots of fair trade coffee cooperatives where a lot of times the co-op will just take the harvest, go and sell it, and then come back and pay cash. So we, um, we bring cash, we pay on the spot, we weigh with the farmer scales, and we guarantee a minimum price. So that's a big foundation of our fair trade commitment, um, which if you look historically, coffee prices is kind of where fair trade came from, is coffee prices can rise, they can fall, it's very insecure for farmers. So we contractually, with each farmer, guarantee we will pay $0.35 cents per pound of fresh leaf um, and guarantee that it's a good income for your family. We can raise the price as much as we want, but it will never go down below $0.35. Cents. So pay the farmers, visit about 15 farms a day, uh, fill up a big truck truck full of beautiful, fresh guayusa leaves, and bring that into our factory. So tell us tell us about like you know the pinup 
Guayusaliv, you know, what's it look like? What are the quality markers, the characteristics? I mean, obviously there's some uh, criteria with regards to not just volume of production, but the, the quality of production. So what should it look like, feel like, you know, give us give us a sense? For sure. Uh, Guayusa, the botanical name is Ilex Guayusa. So it's actually in the holly family. Um, so it doesn't have, you know, spines, thankfully, like the hollies that we're familiar with up here, but it does have a bit of a ribbed shape. Um, the leaves typically are about five inches long, about two and a half inches wide, uh, deep, dark green, kind of some texture to the leaf. And the main requisite is cleanliness. So, um, you know, we don't want leaves that are moldy, that have moss on them, that are at all distorted. So at this point, farmers, it was actually a pretty big education process early on um, because farmers would try and deliver, you know, maybe not the nicest looking leaves, which did not meet our QC standards. But to them, you know, they don't really have QC standards. So they're like, well, what? You're not going to buy my leaves? Like, oh, you know, get all angry. And we said, well, if someone in the United States drinks these leaves and gets sick, there's no business. So we don't want that to happen. Um, So it's been a process of just being very clear with expectations. And at this point, farmers have a really good sense of the QC standards, and it's really not an issue. And and what percentage of someone's income is the Guayusa production making up? I mean, are you... the primary source of income for families, or are you one in a group of? No, so for most of the farmers that we work with, it's usually somewhere between 15 and 40% is what we've been seeing recently. Um, the big thing for us that we think about is we don't want this to supplant other incomes. We get really disappointed and make it really clear that we don't want to see people tearing down cacao trees, unless they're obviously non-viable or old, you know, cutting down other areas. We really want this to be something that they can add to their livelihoods. So when we talk about how much income we're trying to drive to farmers, it's really about the additional income on top of what they're making. So it's kind of a piece of a bigger pot. And when you look at it along those lines, most of the farmers we work with are already seeing 20, 30, 40% incomes. And we do see potential to double or triple their incomes, but also not just through Guayusa, but through all those other plants that we're trying to bring more of through that chakra system I described. Okay, so... I I'm, I think I I think I missed something here. So the the other plants, the other things that th- they're producing, you guys aren't purchasing. But the way that the system works is if they have a diversity of production for their their farm. Is that so? There's two things. I mean, we're planting we're planting largely guayusa is the biggest thing, and mm-hmm. increasing incomes that way. We're also planting other crops that they either can consume themselves or there's already markets for through you know, ginger, through herb suppliers, et cetera, et cetera. But on top of that, we are looking at how guayusa is the most important thing, but we really want to kind of build and work with the farmers to grow the underlying Amazonian economy. So we don't think we'll be necessarily making other consumer products with other herbs and spices and plants they can grow, but we might work with them to either set up the cooperatives as bulk suppliers or buy from them and be resellers. There's a lot of potential there that we're still working on. And so earlier when you're talking about the, the life cycle of the plant, you mentioned that you guys uh, grow, grow the plants out from seedling and then give them to the farmers. Is there um, some sense of ownership that follows that? Or that's, I mean, you're literally just giving them plants to start with and everything else is like on them. They're independent. Is there a partnership component to the production or you guys literally just show up with the truck and, and commit to buy at a minimum price? Um, so a unique feature of the supply chain for Guayus is it's almost the only tea in the world that's only grown by independent farming families. So in terms of, you know, it's their farm, they own the land, they own the trees, it's their right to sell to whoever they want at the best price they can get. Um, when we deliver trees, um, 
the agreement is that they have to prepare their land, you know, dig the holes, you know, et cetera, et cetera, be ready to plant, and then they do all the labor, the resources, et cetera, which is a pretty big investment on their part. Um, early on, since it is a new business, we decided to take more of the risk in our hands in terms of planting the seedlings and getting seedlings into their hands. As things have grown pretty rapidly, we're seeing lots of farmers doing it completely on their own, which is obviously more cost-effective for us and much better in terms of their you know, incentive and, and management of the production. Got it. Well, moving on in the kind of processing conversation, um, the, the leaves are loaded onto the truck, and then what happens? So we take them in the bulk bags back to the factory that we have. And one thing that we talked about a little bit, I want to make really clear, is that we don't own anything except for the processing facility. Um, and so, but that is where we kind of take the Runa side of the equation over. So we bring them back. We wash them, we do a pre-rinse, and then we leave them out for what's called the withering process, which is basically the pre-drying process where they go through some of the initial chemical sort of settling that has to happen. And then we currently use a system where once that's happened, we load them onto tray dryers that go into a large oven, on so stacks and stacks and stacks of trays on wheels. Um, and once that happens, they go through the milling process and the sifting and so forth. So that's where it currently stands. And... You then um, have the kind of dried leaves, which look like, if I'm comparing them to another tea leaf that folks might be more familiar with, black tea, long green teas, does it look like that or does it look different? The closest thing you'd look to is like yerba mate, if you've ever seen okay. kind of ground up yerba mate. Um, it doesn't have stems like mate does, but it's that similar similar color, similar cut size to the leaf. And then the, the dried tea is then comes into the U.S. for the tea making, the actual like you know bottle of tea like I have in front of me? So what we do is we actually have the very large 50-kilogram sacks, or 110 pounds. And we've, we're very glad. We just got to a point where we can do full containers worth, so they're now actually shipping up through the Panama Canal, which is obviously much more sustainable. So we have a one warehouse where we store everything. So we have our, our dry tea in bulk, the tea bags, the bottled beverages, the energy drinks we produce. Everything's stored there. We send... From there, that plus all the other ingredients out to the various um, other companies that produce the three lines of products we have. Okay. And those three lines are? So we have tea, what's, you know, infusers, we call them bagged tea, although Guayusa isn't technically a tea, and four flavors of that. Okay. We also have loose leaf tea that kind of is in the same bucket, but that's really more for cafes. Okay. And then, so we've been selling those for about two years. Last year, and that's kind of our big focus now, is we have these bottled beverages. So those are made with a uh, Guayusa concentrate that was developed with one of our close partners in a facility just in New Jersey. Okay. And then we very recently, in April, launched our clean energy drink, which is in a can and it's carbonated, but it's still based on that one single benefit of Gua- or the one single ingredient of Guayusa with all of its benefits. And those are manufactured in the Midwest and then stored here. You guys must be learning so much so quickly. <laughs> so many things we never even imagined having to know. <laughs> So, um, you know, I want to kind of tuck into, like, the FAQs. Like, it's not a tea. Correct. So what's the difference? So technically the word tea describes any leaf which has been derived from the Camellia sinensis plant. So what a lot of people don't know is that white tea, green tea, oolong, puer, and black tea all come from the same plant. Um, They're just processed different ways, largely depending on levels of oxidation that make the different leaves. So in the strictest sense, that's tea. Informally, everyone says, oh, I'm drinking some mint tea or some chamomile tea. So informally, you would call those things tea, or you could say guayusa tea, but in the strictest sense, it's not actually tea. Um, Yeah. And then it, it, it does have like a stimulant effect, but that's not caffeine, but... 
the it is caffeine, okay. but it's caffeine plus other stuff. Okay. So caffeine is the biggest one, and we you know put that very clearly. Don't want any confusion there. And it is about as much as a cup of coffee. But there's um, a couple other key stimulants that are thrown in. The biggest one is theo, or one of the biggest ones is theobromine, which is actually what you find in chocolate. And it gives you that kind of euphoric buzz that you get from eating you know, a lot of chocolate, which I'm sure all of us have done at one point or another. Um, and then the other big one is theanine, which you find in green tea. And that gives more of a calming, soothing to the nerve sense. And those plus a bunch of other compounds are what have the antioxidant effect that so many people are looking for in new products. And it's a big, you know, a lot of buzz about it these days. We've actually done a lot of comparative testing to leading green tea products and shown that guayza has about double the antioxidants of green tea bonus yeah well <laughs> how would you describe the the flavor so guayusa doesn't have tannins so a key characteristic that people know if you steep a cup of black tea or green tea it gets that kind of thin astringent taste or if you oversteep it it doesn't taste very good um with guayusa you can brew it for 30 minutes or an hour and it doesn't get bitter or astringent so the two most common words we hear from consumers are clean and smooth um it's really light uh, it's almost like a round texture to it and what's nice about our glass bottle product is that you need to add very little sugar, you know, 14 grams, 50 calories in a bottle to make it taste sweet. There's actually one really cool thing about the leaf itself that people comment on and we notice is it has a very slightly naturally sweet taste to it. And that's made everything easier, but we're also trying to actually figure out which specific compounds do that because it, it's a taste that's kind of unlike anything else. So then you could essentially selectively breed for more of that compound or it's certainly a possibility not our focus right now but something we've definitely thought about interesting and where can folks find uh the beverages or the the dry teas you can find them in the new york area in whole foods and fairway you can find us in a lot of cvs's which is kind of cool um, a lot of independent natural food stores who we love um and you know i know a lot of your listeners are nationwide so we're in most of the whole foods across the country vitamin shop uh fresh market earth fair sprouts and we're growing nationally. I mean, by this time next year, we'll probably be in twice as many places. Kudos. Well, so, you know, as I said earlier, I'm, I'm a bit of a skeptic and, and often a little bit nervous about um, products like in this category. And you guys have done a lot to dispel my worries here about this team in particular. I know when I'm looking at the bottle, there's also a number of certifications that you list. You know, it's USDA organic. It's fair trade. Um, what... You know, what for consumers, I mean, can you arm us a little bit, like when we're out in the kind of world of products that are, you know, Amazonian rainforests, like Cural's, what questions should we be asking? What should we be looking for? Kind of who do we trust in this landscape? As, as people who have worked professionally in the region, uh, give, give us some tools. So I think the biggest thing I'd say is look at the ingredient list always. Um, you know, for us, we really make it clear. It's flavorings made from fruits. It's guayusa. It's sugar. It's water. Um, what people have found some controversy recently about is the concept of natural flavorings, which the FDA sometimes allows things that people wouldn't normally consider natural. And that's when, honestly, you, can, you have to go look on the site. And that's why we, for example, are going out of our way to list everything in the product. And we also actually recently just finished the non-GMO certification. And that's another thing that people are starting to pay a lot more attention to as well. The, the two certifications that I'm a huge believer in, and you know, I've lived down there for many years, gone through all the organic inspections and fair trade, is these certifications are legit and they're very serious. So I think there's a big consumer perception, especially as our you know, more sophisticated you know, eco-consumers of, oh, organic, oh, that doesn't really mean anything. Or, oh, fair trade, yeah, right. Oh, I'm sure that the farmers are really getting ripped off. If you ever want to go down to any organic inspection and read through the dozens and hundreds of pages of audits and inspections and criteria, it is really, really serious. 
Um, so it starts with, you know, no pesticides, et cetera, no insecticides, but it has everything to do with trash management on the farm, soil conservation practices, um, cooperative management. There's a huge amount of different criteria that go into organic certification. Yes, it's not perfect. Yes, it's not always followed as strictly as it could be, um, but it's really a, a fairly powerful standard and um, buying organic certified products really does make a difference. Similarly with fair trade, um, fair trade really creates a lot of impact. And the two ways it does that, as we talked about, is first through minimum prices. So companies who um, are fair trade certified guarantee minimum prices to farmers. And the second, which I think a lot of people don't know about, which potentially is the biggest impact, is what's called social premium payments. So for example, what we do is say within a month we buy um, you know, $100,000 worth of guayusa directly from farmers. We pay an additional 15% to the farmer cooperative. So what's great about that is on the local level, we're paying income to farmers. It's great income. They're supporting their families. But the social premium goes to their collective organization. So what's also great is it kind of, again, breaks that charity model. It's not saying, hey, here's just some money because you guys need it. It's saying, hey, you guys earn this bonus. And then you as a group can decide how you want to invest these resources in your development. So farmers have to propose projects. As a community, they vote on what they want to do and they execute the programs. So it's structurally, it's so much different when like they earn those resources. They're deciding what they want to do to support their communities and coming together as a group to do so. So the social premium payments as part of um, the certification through Fair Trade USA, to me, is a really critical piece. Um, and I've seen it and lived it on the ground of the kind of impact it can create for communities. Can people still win a trip to Ecuador? Yes. Can you give me some details? Absolutely. Um, so we're doing a competition this summer to win a free trip down to Ecuador. All expenses paid, flight, the full deal. Um, we're doing a Twitter competition. So everybody can check us out at, at DrinkRuna. Um, and at DrinkRuna, we have some uh, cool criteria to send us a picture. Um, and it's not just Twitter. It's Instagram and Facebook as well. We may actually just get the same name across all of it. Yeah, um, so check us out on DrinkRuna. Um, follow us. We're also uh, doing a lot of stuff at the Celebrate Brooklyn concert series here, a lot of events. Um, but definitely reach out to us. We love hearing from people and getting the word out there about Runa. Awesome. Well, Tyler, Dan, thank you so much thank for, for joining us and illuminating some of the, the production and bringing some tea. Yay, thank you. Our pleasure as always. If you want to find out more, definitely check them out, www.runa.org. Uh, thanks so much for tuning in. This, like all 30 of our live weekly shows, are available for free on our website, www.heritageradionetwork.org. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher Smart Radio. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr. There's so <laughs> many ways to engage. Uh, but most importantly, keep tuning in, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.
Today's program has been brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit internationalculinarycenter.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. What's hot at the green market? You're about to find out now. It's the Grow NYC Market Update. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Grow NYC Market Update. We are on the line with Jean Hodesh of Green Market's Publicity Coordinator. Um, Jean, uh, how are you feeling this morning after that birthday bash last night? <laughs> hey, Aaron. We're we're recovering. It was such a great party. That was really nice to see everybody out in Union Square last night to celebrate our 37th anniversary. Awesome. Well, kudos. Um, where are we heading today? So this week, I wanted to talk about our youth markets, which is sort of um, another project that Grow NYC runs, and they operate kind of in conjunction with green markets. So uh, we've got 14 youth markets around the city, and. Um, they act sort of as mini green markets, so they offer a range of produce grown by green market farmers, and the stands are each run by youth who are hired by neighborhood partnering organizations. So the teenagers get a summer job that teaches them small business skills and marketing. They learn about healthy eating by doing cooking demonstrations and talking up their products to customers. And then it's an additional source of revenue for our regional farmers. So it's a really nice program. And the way, the, the, the way that it works is that our green market farmers supply the produce to our wholesale operation, Green Market Co., which has a warehouse in Long Island City. So we have a refrigerated truck that kind of aggregates the orders, and then they drop off the produce at the various youth markets around the city. And then the team on the ground at each site sets up their stand. They set up tents and tables, and then they sell the fresh produce to customers in the neighborhood. So this summer we have 14 youth markets, which is awesome. Uh, they're in all five boroughs, and they operate. They all opened last week. So I think there were five opening last Thursday and then a bunch more on Saturday, and uh, that operates through the summer and into the fall. So on Saturday, I went out to the opening day of the Long Island City Youth Market. It was really great. It was, you know, people in the neighborhood were walking by. Council member um, Ben Bramer came by. And then we have one outside the public library in Kensington and Brooklyn. We have a couple in Brownsville, one at the Roberto Clemente Plaza in the Bronx, and we just opened a new one in the Rockaways at Beach 67th Street. So there are also a number of others, so I would suggest if people are interested in checking them out to visit our website, grandyc.org slash youthmarket. Excellent. And because these markets are a little different, I mean, what are the types of products and, and who, what are the farms and how do we kind of like know what to expect? Sure. So we, we have, just like all of our green markets, we have a dedicated uh, web page for each of the youth markets. So you can visit them, find the one that's in your neighborhood, visit and find a full list of farmers that are supplying the farm stand. But because, again, it's sort of this aggregated order that comes in from multiple farms, there's a really great range of products. So last week in Long Island City, for example, I saw summer squash, callaloo, cabbage, beets, radishes, corn, um, and then the offerings will change as the season goes on, just like 
you know, any of our green markets around the city. But one of the organizers at the market last weekend made a really great cooking demo using Swiss chard scallions and summer squash. It was all raw salad, really simple, and dressed it in a vinaigrette with lemon juice and a little olive oil. And, you know, the kids, it was their first day at the market. They kind of watched her do the cooking demo. They saw that their Swiss chard wasn't selling that fast, and then we put the samples of the salad out. The Swiss chard sold out almost immediately. Everyone was eating the salad. The kids loved it. The customers loved it. So it was really fun to see, and um, people were definitely going to the farm stand after they tried it to buy specifically those ingredients so they could make it at home. Nice. And I just want to ask, what is, what is Callaloo? I'm not familiar with that. It is uh, a green that is, um, I think, I mean, it grows here. I know people uh, who are from the Caribbean really love to eat it. And it's you can kind of steam it like any, any normal green. You can use it in soup. Um, I know Jorge Carmona, who sells at our market on Cortelu Road, always sells out of it. There's like a, a huge <laughs> devoted following just for his Callaloo out in Cortelu Road. Awesome. Well, something to put on my shopping list this mm-hmm. week. Um, all right. Well, no, I know you were down in uh, Long Island City checking out the market uh, this week. What What would you recommend if, for folks making the trek that way? Yeah, it was such a fun day in Long Island City. So I biked over from Brooklyn through Greenpoint over the Pulaski Bridge, and the market was pretty much just on the other side. And then after I was there, there are so many restaurants to have lunch at along Vernon Boulevard. It's in the Hunter's Point section of Long Island City. So it's really a really happening neighborhood. So after I had lunch, I biked up to the Noguchi Museum, which is this amazing sort of calm urban oasis that's not too far away. It's kind of an indoor-outdoor sculpture park with really beautiful gardens. And then also close by, there's PS1, which is another great art museum that they have on Saturdays through the summer. They're really popular warm-up party that they always have DJs and people come and dance. Um, and then also the, the Long Island City Flea just opened, and that's also in the same neighborhood. So it's got food vendors, craft vendors, and it's definitely a nice place to spend Saturday afternoon. Awesome. Well, if folks aren't busy doing that this weekend uh, or in the coming weeks, what kind of events and uh, things are going on that they should keep their calendar clear for? Sure. So we have uh, another book signing with the authors of Fifty Shades of Kale. Um, (laughs) They're coming to Union Square on the 27th. So they'll be signing books and doing cooking demos from 11 a.m. to 2. And then the same day, we've got a cooking demo from Quincipal, which is... um, uh, they're a company that's making these really beautiful food boxes that people can buy. So they shop from all of our farmers. So they'll be doing cooking demos as well that day at 11 a.m. And then coming up um, on July 24th, our Rockefeller Center Green Market opens. And that's always a really fun event every year. Uh, it, the market's not open for that many weeks, just maybe four or five. But uh, the market runs every Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And it's really fun. So you can go up to Rock Center and check that out. Awesome. Jean, thanks so much for taking some time to give us the update. All right. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. For folks who want to stay tuned in to what's happening at the New York City Green Markets, definitely check them out at www.grownyc.org backslash rmarkets. You can also find them on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, the best place for the most amazing fruit and veggie picks, meat picks too. They've, they've pretty much got it all. So check them out and keep listening. Stay tuned in next Thursday for another GrownYC Market Update. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. 
You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.